humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 198, and I did a FaceTime with Dr. Rendy Murphy. She and I have been friends for years. I think she's brilliant. She is an epidemiologist, currently director of the Mobile Alabama Health Department. She works with the Alabama Public Health. She's formerly with the CDC. She was there forever uh, and did a great job with the CDC. She's also worked with the Tennessee Department of Health. She's a retired captain in the United States Public Health Service. So as she put it in the interview, uh, when you think of the Surgeon General, that is her commanding officer. That being said, we talked about all sorts of things. Obviously, the coronavirus, because that is a very hot topic right now. We talked about STDs. We talked about HIV. We talked about uh, tuberculosis, Ebola. She worked with Ebola cases. Really fascinating life that Rendy has led. Um, Again, I cannot speak more highly of her. She is a wonderful person, uh, inside and out, and smart as a whip. We have had so many fantastic conversations over the years. And uh, so I was really happy. I, I, for a couple of years now, I've been trying to get her on the show and she's so busy. And uh, so here we are and I'm really excited to share this with you. The usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast at Instagram and Facebook. If you want my personal social media, it's Susan Ruthism, uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. It really helps to get those ratings and reviews. Um, so if you have a few minutes, please do that. It's, uh, that would be great. You can find more about me at SusanRuth.com. There's stuff about my art and my music and any acting-y stuff I'm going to do. Acting-y stuff, that is an official term. But if I have any performances or anything, it will be on SusanRuth.com. HeyHumanPodcast.com is, of course, the main website for Hey Human. Makes sense. And on there, you can find a links page. And this episode particularly, I think it's great to go to the links page because all the stuff that Rendy and I talk about, I, I put a bunch of information for this week's episode. She mentions a couple of good places to look, especially if you're freaked out by the coronavirus. Uh, so those will be there on the links page. She also is open to getting emails from you, so I'll make sure that info is on the links page as well. Or you can, of course, always email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com, and I can pass that on to her. I want to thank those of you who have donated to Hey Human. I really appreciate it. Your support is humongous and helps keep the podcast alive and well. And if you want to donate and you haven't had the opportunity and you think that it's a donate-worthy show that you want to hear... It, keep going. The donate button is there on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. So please check that out. I appreciate it. Okay, well, enough of all that stuff. Let's get into this episode. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Here we go. Dr. Rennie Murphy, welcome to Hey Human. I'm so excited to have you on the show. This has been a long time coming. Yeah, it has been a while, so I'm really glad that we we pulled it off finally. Yay! It's been a while since I've seen you, since the Nashville days. <laughs> yeah, I think probably, I think about two years, maybe 18 months. That's a crime. 
Yeah, because I think the last time was at 51 or 51st or whatever, that restaurant yeah. with the dog park. Yeah, yeah, the dog park restaurant. I like yeah. that place. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's great to see you. Good to see you too, Susan. Thank you for being on the show. You uh, retired recently from the CDC. Uh, explain what your role was there. Well, it was, um, it evolved. So it started out, my um, first job with the Centers for Disease Control was as a research microbiologist. So I, um, I had worked in foodborne um, microbiology in an academic institution just out of graduate school and then went to work for CDC in Fort Collins, Colorado. So out there they have the division of vector-borne infectious diseases, who knew, in Fort Collins, Colorado. So I started there as a microbiologist working on developing assays for um, Borreliosis, which is primarily Lyme disease, but there are other, some other Borrelia that cause or are thought to cause infection. So that's where I started was in Fort Collins as a microbiologist. And then um, I, I learned about this world of epidemiology and U.S. Public Health Service, and those were agencies and terms I'd really not encountered in my life before I was raised in the South, remember? Um, so I was like, that's really what I want to do. I want to be an epidemiologist. And so I went to school at Colorado State, got a PhD, applied to the CDC Epidemic Intelligence Service, um, was accepted, which is great. That's kind of the, um, the, the proving ground for any, you know, um, bona fide disease detective is you got to go through the CDC epidemic intelligence um, service. So I did that. And then I worked the last 10 years of my time with CDC as an epidemiologist. I did have during that time, a just a two year little side jaunt over to Chicago um, O'Hare airport working with global migration and quarantine for CDC. So like I said, I've done a lot for the agency. But yeah, I retired after 20 years being in the U.S. Public Health Service and in the, at the CDC. And now you are still active in the biz. Yeah. So um, after, you know, air quotes, retirement, um, we <laughs> moved to South, South Alabama so we could be closer to family. And I'm very fortunate now to be working at a local health department in South Alabama. And I work there as an epidemiologist still. I'm, I think I'm the only one at this agency, which is shocking, but again, it's rural Alabama. Um, and then I'm also the director of the Bureau of Disease Surveillance and Environmental Services which is a big job, a big girl job. I was not expecting to have this much responsibility in, you know, like I said, air quote, re retirement. Um, but I'm super lucky to have landed this position and I'm, I'm learning a lot about the agency and about how to be an administrator now. <laughs> and you're also a retired military, correct? Or are you active? Yeah, yeah I retired um, from active duty in the U.S. Public Health Service. Lots of folks don't don't know what that is, or they say they've never heard of it. But if you know the Surgeon General who warns you not to smoke, that's our commanding officer. There are probably six or seven thousand active duty officers in USPHS um, strewn around the the U.S. primarily, and the service really is to provide primarily to provide um, health care to indigent populations. So we have lots of um, 
clinicians working at the Bureau of Prisons, at the Indian Health Service, with um, Customs and Border Protection, ICE, um, you know, providing health care to detainees uh, at border um, crossings. And then a lot of other folks like me, scientists that work at CDC or NIH or Health and Human Services, that sort of thing. So, yeah, so I retired from active duty, so no more uniforms every day, no more hair in a bun every day. Um, I am now in the land of the civilians. Is that a, a naval branch? So that's um, close. So it actually started very close with U.S. Navy because um, when the service was first, when they first started hiring physicians to care for merchant marines, um, we they were, were all part of sort of grew um, together. And so Navy um, became sort of the you know, the folks on the ships and that sort of thing. And the public health service became the the arm of the service that, like, would um, put vessels under quarantine when they would come into ports, also would provide um, health care for, like I said, for the merchant marines and eventually um, other services. And, um, yeah, so it's similar, but a different, um, a different service. Like, for example, the Navy is under the Department of Defense, so they are armed and trained in combat and that sort of thing. And U.S. Public Health Service is under the Department of Health and Human Services. Mm. Um, but we also provide health care for the Coast Guard, for example. Um, so, yeah. So very similar. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say one of the things that's super cool about my new position is the building that I work in is like 200 years old. And it used to be an old it started out as a merchant marine hospital and a quarantine hospital for U.S. Public Health Service and what became the U.S. Navy. So um, I feel really sort of close to my roots in many ways by um, working in this building that's been around for so long and has 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 its roots in U.S. Public Health Service. It's really cool. We, we carry sea ranks just like the Navy does. I retired as a captain, which is an 06 in the Navy, so um, admirals or 07s, if that kind of puts into contact sort of the rank. I feel very fortunate to have reached that rank um, before I was eligible to retire. It's really great. So all the pay and the rank and the benefits and all of that is is the same as the other um, armed, armed forces. What got you interested in epidemiology? Why, why the shift once you realized that it was, it was out there? So this goes back really to high school, and I don't know how, um, how the demographics of your um, followers, but all over, everywhere. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I I wanted to be Quincy. So Quincy was a forensic pathologist on TV, and that's really what I had my eyes set on. But I, like I said, I came from a, a pretty poor background, a very rural area, and I just did not, out of high school, couldn't find I could couldn't find my own path to medical school. So I went the route of microbiology, which really satiated that sort of investigative nature in me to sort of find out, you know, um, you know, have a research question and then just go about trying to answer it. So when I got to CDC as a microbiologist, like I said, I'd not even heard of the field of epidemiology. I didn't understand what a disease detective was or, you know, that that was a real job, you know. And so uh, I just thought, wow, being a, a, a research scientist, I, I had a lot of, um, I got a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment out of that. But with epidemiology, I really had the opportunity to work more with the, 
with people, with populations of people, and, you know, not so much bacteria and viruses and petri dishes, right? So um, that's really um, sort of why I decided to shift gears. And it was it was just a natural fit for my interests. Um, it's just been a really great um, career and continues to be for me. What do you think about, uh, how do I put this? Does, does what you know make you hypersensitive to germs or do you think it's given you a more lax attitude? It has definitely um, just sort of numbed me a little bit to any concern about germs. You know, as a, as a laboratorian, I had several um, exposure, you know, accidental exposures in the laboratory where I would have to go on fever watch for, you know, a period of time. Um, I, one time I was working with some frozen listeria, uh, which is a foodborne pathogen, and I flicked some of it into my eye, and I had to, like, go on fear watch for that. And then once at BC, I opened a centrifuge, and it had, like, wild-type dengue in it, and so I had Dengue to fever? Yeah. Oh, jeez. I had to go on, on fever watch for dengue virus for a while. And then I was working with Francisella, which is Francisella tularensis is the um, bacteria that causes tularemia. And I was working with a not um, bad version of, of Francisella and it like spilled onto my hand. And so I had to go on fever watch for that. So didn't Francisella just win an Oscar? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like such a name of a person. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's a good, good thing I don't have any children because they may have wound up with just the oddest scientific names. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I I remember uh, way back. So you you worked with Ebola. Did you go? Yeah, talk yeah. about that because I find that fascinating. Were you scared knowing? I mean, I suppose you have a lot more knowledge than the average bear. So, yeah. and for the the regular folk that are reading the news terror sells much better than yeah. calm and i remember when you were heading that way and i thought well i think she's gonna be fine but it's got to be a little insane i think that um well first of all you know they don't send us unless we are very well trained and you know fit um for i'm working in those environments so you know I have to sort of rely, as all responders do, you know, rely on my training and my instinct and my experience to make sure that I don't get myself into, you know, a, a, a situation where I might be exposed to a communicable disease or, you know, be put in danger. You know, most people overseas that travel, you know, they're more likely to get into a car accident than, you know, get an infectious disease. However, um, I do not worry usually leading up to it there's a lot of excitement um it's like this is what we've trained for right like let's go so sort of like a firefighter running into a burning building you know it's like when there's a big outbreak like we all want to go we all want to go we all want to help um we want to figure out what's going on we want to stop illness and death um you know and so that's usually how i feel going into a deployment and then um, once I'm there, it's all about listening and learning and trying to figure out how, um, you know, you can help the jurisdiction that you're sent there to assist. Because often I'm not, you know, 
often the governments have decided that, you know, we need CDC personnel here, we need FEMA people here, not the local residents. And so you have to be very sensitive to, you know, going into those environments and trying to help people, right? They don't always look at it as, you know, um, you know, U.S. person, woman, man here to help me. So it's a little tricky. So that's that usually takes some time. And then usually by four, five, six, eight weeks, I'm exhausted and ready to come home. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm never doing it again. And then, <laughs> then as soon as I'm rested, I'm like, yeah, I'll go to Haiti, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. So it's a, it's a cycle. But it's usually a very, very um, exciting um, time for epidemiologists, disease detectives, people like me. It's like chasing ambulances. Yeah, that is a weird thought to think that you're more excited when the world is a little off kilter. Were you boots on the ground dealing with Ebola patients? Were you in the lab? So um, I'm not a clinician. I don't, I'm not a licensed healthcare provider. So I was not in the Ebola treatment units. Um, I worked with the county government um, to try to provide some technical assistance to them. One of the things, I did a lot of stuff, but um, one of the big things I did along with um, another um, couple of people from CDC was to um, evaluate their dead body teams and I know that sounds rather harsh, but that's just, you know, what they were. They were these teams of folks, locals, who would go out and, you know, retrieve dead bodies and move them to locations that had been secured um, to try to stop the transmission of Ebola. Because, you know, in uh, practices around burial and and um, handling um, decedents, the body of decedents um, after they pass is very different in different cultures and there there's a lot of hand on hands on um, you know preparation mourning that sort of thing which was propagating the um, spread of Ebola and so I followed um, lots of um, dead body teams and retrievals to try to see if we could you know make some recommendations for improving the safety of the, their practices during body removal so as you can imagine that was an extremely difficult time so I have a couple of photos where I'm standing you know without personal protective equipment next to the spouse, you know, of a person who had been, had died from Ebola and been in the house for, you know, five days because there just weren't enough um, teams to come and retrieve them. And looking back on those photos, I think, wow, you know, um, this was, I probably should have put a little bit more distance between me and the, you know, and the family member that had been, you know, living with this person who died from Ebola for several days. Um, but that was a pretty unique experience. Um, I did go into several Ebola treatment units, but mostly just to talk to sort of intake, that sort of thing. And then another thing that I did with the government there, which was really important, was to try to um, go about in the countryside to identify um, sort of respite centers where people who um, probably didn't have Ebola but needed to be tested to rule out could go um, and stay while they were waiting testing results because there were so few treatment facilities. We were trying to keep, you know, worried well out of Ebola treatment units where they could potentially be exposed and, you know, provide other safe um, spaces for them to, you know, receive hydration and evaluation that were out more in the in the countryside. So that was a really fulfilling part of what I did while I was in, um, you know, was was during the Ebola response as well. Mm. Let's talk elephants. Oh, my goodness. 
<laughs> so elephants is you know it um yeah it's a crazy story to me it's i still get calls about this susan like probably at least once a year someone calls the elephant lady and wants to <laughs> talk about it's a quite the, a story this study that i did back in what was it? I think it was 2010, maybe 2009, 2010. So at the time, I was a brand new, um, you know, EIS officer. So I was in that two-year program that CDC, you know, has for doctoral level people to learn how to, um, you know, investigate and diseases. And um, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd been assigned to the Tennessee Department of Health. And it just so happened that one of my advisors um, had a connection with the elephant sanctuary in um, in Nashville. Well, not in Nashville, but outside of, of Nashville, Tennessee. And so we've gotten reports that some of the workers at the sanctuary had um, converted. That's kind of a, a lingo um, that's used with tuberculosis, had converted for TB. And so let me sort of just quickly explain that you know a lot of people think tb is like you know an ancient disease and we don't have it anymore but we do have tuberculosis both introduced in the country through travelers and also spread person to person in the united states um all the time and the cheapest way and the 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 to to screen people is to do this thing called a tuberculin skin test so basically they put a little bit of tb antigen under your skin and then three days later um, you could have it checked by a healthcare provider if you if your immune system has been primed for for tb for tuberculosis then that um, antigen reacts and it enlarges and inflames and hardens and so that's you convert from a negative to a positive so that's why it's called conversion so we heard that people at the sanctuary had converted to tb so we got permission for the sanctuary the sanctuary is several thousand acres they only take in well they have a lot of elephants but they mostly take in elephants that have been you know on tour or mistreated or have diseased and they provide them just this lovely existence it's like a respite or retirement home for you know for elephants that have served their time in chains and circuses and in zoos and traveling you know um tents and now they have been rescued and they are very well taken care of at the sanctuary so we got permission from the sanctuary to come on site and try to see you know what's happening here and so through an epidemiologic study we determined that some elephants there were known to have been infected with tuberculosis many years prior to arriving in Tennessee, and they were shedding tuberculosis probably through their trunks, you know, as they, you know, trumpet um, or cough or sneeze, um, maybe shedding through, you know, urine or feces, um, who knows. And then the workers were not adequately protected because the ventilation system was probably not efficient in protecting them from TB. And so if you can imagine a huge barn with four to six elephants in it, and they're, you know, every day workers have to go in there they wear like, you know, um, these suits to try to protect them and they're pressure washing, you know, the barn every day and trying to make it really clean. And by doing so, they're, you know, probably re-aerosolizing tuberculosis and then 
going into the room next door, taking off their protective equipment, and unbeknownst to them, some of the air from the barn has gotten into what they thought was a safe area, and so they breathed in um, TB and, you know, converted to TB. The good thing is in that um, investigation is that none of the workers, the you know, the elephant caretakers, none of them got TB disease. They did convert, meaning that they had been infected with TB, but they didn't get TB disease. So they all took antibiotics to make sure that they didn't get disease and they did not. So that's, I guess, the success story, the silver lining. But it was pretty landmark because there had been um, reports here and there about the possibility that this could happen. But in many people's minds this was kind of like the first um not a clinical trial but the first observational study of you know an outbreak investigation associated with elephants so we could demonstrate statistically that that those folks um got tb from those elephants not from someplace else in the community or you know from other humans or things of that nature and you also did you not pick it up yeah i did that's another picture that I have <laughs> where I'm pretty sure I have a photograph that I was taking taking of the workers because I was there to observe what they were doing so that I could try to figure out, you know, where the breaches and infection control were happening. And so, you know, it wasn't really until it was kind of too late for me that I figured it out. <laughs> so, um, uh-huh. yeah, hopefully we protected um, other folks from, you know, and again, I did not get disease. I took... I think six work six um, months work of, worth of antibiotics to protect me from infection. And the crazy thing about that is that during that six months of antibiotics, I got deployed to Haiti following the the earthquake. I went about four to six months after the earthquake just to do like shelter surveillance. And while I was there, I had to take um, anti-malarial medications. <laughs> and I ended up like just all of the meds, like my liver enzymes spiked and I had to come off of it so that, you know, I didn't, my liver didn't suffer. So, yeah, so I've never gotten an infectious disease that I know of at work, but I nearly like, you know, started getting some liver damage by taking prevention <laughs> antibiotics and malaria anti-malarial it was just crazy wow six months of antibiotics your gut must have just been desperate for happy happy <laughs> bacteria by then yeah luckily the um, treatment practices have changed and there we have a lot much 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 shorter courses of antibiotics for um, tb infection and tb disease these days so it's it's gotten a lot better in the 10 years since i was involved with it and tuberculosis is making an uptick here just within the city all the all the encampments and things they're finding that the tb is on the rise there's a lot of uh, especially in the united states and you had when we were making arrangements for this you had said that you were heading to a a conference about syphilis and i thought man all these things that we sort of quieted down are now spiking again. Yeah, it's really concerning. Yeah, the TB thing, you know, now I work in Alabama and just in this jurisdiction that I work in where there are about, you know, 450,000 people that live in this jurisdiction. In 2018, they had two TB cases. In 2019, they had 11. Which is a huge uptick. It doesn't sound like a lot of people, but if you're looking at it in terms of science, that's a huge uptick. I mean, very, very concerning. Part of it is better, easier detection. 
you know, the tests for detecting TB infection and diseases are, are getting, well, any diseases actually, they're getting better. And so part of that uptick might be that we can detect it faster, sooner, better. Um, but part of it is just, um, I, I think, you know, um, we're, prevention is a hard um, activity to sell. And, you know, we, we rely so much on what I call kind of like rescue medicine, like, okay, I'll take a pill to make me better, or I'll take a supplement to, you know, keep me, you know, to cure my infection, or I'll get surgery, or, you know, um, take insulin, because, you know, I can't control my diabetes with exercise and diet. But those prevention measures, you know, hand washing, vaccination, um, where the, you know, sexually transmitted infections are concerned, wearing condoms, you know, it's just, it's really difficult to sell those um, very easy prevention measures and to keep people doing it. I think, too, with the, the fact that now HIV isn't a terminal illness, uh, people, for the most part, unless you can't afford the extraordinarily expensive medication, that they are now looking at that as a not as big of a deal or you know and i read somewhere and i don't know if this is true you can you probably know the statistics that atlanta alone had dozen new cases of hiv over the last couple of years is that true that seemed alarming to me but i don't know about atlanta but or about the, the number but yes in the last five years like u.s wide in the south is more heavily impacted than others we've seen an, an uptick of hiv cases and you know the the great thing about hiv is that we do have amazing treatments now and you know now it's about getting on treatment and getting your hiv um, levels below detection because if you get your HIV level below detection, they call it you means you, undetectable means untransmittable. So if you can get your viral load down, then yeah, you don't have to worry about passing HIV to your sexual partners, but you still can pass syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't stop using condoms altogether if you're having promiscuous sex because these other sexually transmitted diseases you know are still out there and they're out there in big time supply so yeah i, I can't remember if it was anthony jeselnik or there maybe i can't remember it was a male comic i can't remember who it was now maybe it was um it might have been uh Russell Brand. It's somebody. I'll have to look it up. And I, I apologies to the comics of the world because I'm about to, to lay this on someone. It might not be them. But um, that said, you know, to cure most STDs with antibiotics takes about 10 days. If people would just stop having sex and take in it, if every, everyone across the world who's, who's sexually active stop having sex for 10 days, take all your medicine, we would wipe out everything. <laughs> but nobody's willing to do it. <laughs> no. no, because you there's such a thing as reinfection. So we'd have to do that like once a year, you know. <laughs> like, it can come up once you've got it. Well, yeah, sure. Like yeah. if you are... Right. Yeah. But once you've killed it within your body, you, you don't get it again until you've been reinfected by another right, partner. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Susan, that happens way oh. more. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that you say in the southern states where abstinence is such a big part of the vernacular. And, and as we all know, that actually does not work to tell people just don't have sex doesn't work religion doesn't stop sexually transmitted diseases or pregnancy or yeah 
that must be right. frustrating as a healthcare person. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit, but I think that, you know, some of those, when I was a federal employee, that some of those big policies, I think, impacted me more than they did maybe at the state level or at the local level, because I think the closer you get to that personal interaction with people, the the more um, you realize that you, you know, even though there may be like, you know, a presidential policy against or for abstinence or what, whoever's in office, right, um, you know, if they pull funding or, or whatever, same thing could apply to, you know, gun use and those sorts of things. You know, when we're out there at the local level talking with people, like we're just talking to a person, right? Like you need to see, <laughs> let's try to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Let's try to avoid, you know, STD transmission. Here's some condoms, you know, we try to just do the right thing um, when we're on that sort of, you know, local level trying to implement, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, implement prevention measures yeah and trying to stay out of that sort of you know national um conversation about policy and that sort of thing yeah well that makes sense because i think for a lot of people especially on the local level they have zero cares about what's going on in the policy place and the other thing that that we really um, have to remember is that you know s- someone having testing positive for hiv or another std it's it may not be the most you know the most um difficult thing in their life right now i mean they may be dealing with housing needs and hunger mm-hmm. and you know keeping their kids in school or you know so it's important that we sort of have that broader context and realize that yes to us it's the most important thing but in the lives of these folks that are affected um it it may not be you know what they need help with at this at this moment in time so a lot of a lot of managing um you know people who have or who are at risk of contracting a sexually transmitted infection a lot of it is about helping the whole person um not just sort of you know addressing their infection or their sexual practices well and another thing too that you bring up the at risk is i think there is this great misunderstanding that only particular people get an std and a a bug doesn't care who you are that's true doesn't the bug doesn't see color doesn't see religion doesn't see sexual orientation does not care (laughs) yeah right right and that is very true for the the other sort of more common things out there that we're dealing with right now like influenza um you know those sorts of things like we just have to keep telling people like wash your hands wash your hands wash your hands like um because you know get a vaccine um to try to protect yourself you know from from getting flu or if you do get influenza from protecting you from getting you know so sick that you have to stay home for 10 days or potentially hospitalized so like i said it's it's um it's and, and, and anyone, anyone is like, at, you know, subject to getting some of those things. So it's it's something that, you know, we have job security. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we don't have a lot of funding, but we have <laughs> lots of work to do. Well, I look at something like the coronavirus, which I think we should talk about, because I think most most of the news is really getting the fear thing out there instead of the calm thing out there. Yeah. Um, and that's probably a huge thing that you in your profession have to go up against all the time but you're far more likely to get the flu than the coronavirus i mean just 
and it's frustrating because now it's just another reason to hang your hat on uh, xenophobia or, you know, whatever, too. Let's talk about coronavirus a little bit, because I think people want to, from straight from somebody who actually knows what they're saying, not just some talking television head wearing a nice suit. I mean, it's... I, people ask me, oh, you know, should I be concerned? Should I be concerned? Talk, you know, around here. And so in, you know, in southern South Alabama, um, we can't, I can't say that there's no risk, but I can say that there is, you know, no known risk to the general population. So those, you know, to folks outside of, you know, this office, that sounds like the same thing or, or mumbo jumbo, but we have to pick our words very carefully. So, you know, if you if you haven't traveled to, to mainland China or if you don't know anyone who has or, you know, then you're you shouldn't worry yourself about getting coronavirus. Um, you should be concerned about, you know, crossing the street safely and, you know, protecting yourself from flu and making sure that you're um, reheating your leftovers and protecting yourself from foodborne illness. But um you know, we are closely watching what's going on because, you know, we've been preparing for a potential pandemic flu for many, many years. And the amazing thing is that some of the plans that have just been sort of very sort of esoteric, really kind of like, you know, um, writing a movie script, right, for the past 10 years, not really knowing if we would ever actually need to implement them like many of those things is what cdc is doing now and so it's a great great um not trial run because we're actually doing it you know so it's a it's going to be a great test of the pandemic flu plans that we've been working on for decades so some of the things that cdc has been doing like federal you know issuing federal mandatory quarantine for hundreds of people like that has not happened in our lifetime um it's unprecedented and so you know that's shocking to people and it's why it's hit the news so much and if if the plan works if they can keep it out of the u.s or becoming a you know community spread in the u.s then we will all be like standing up and applauding and making donation, right? Like thanking, you know, our, our gods that they did it and they, they did it early and they kept it out. So I think it's probably too early to know if what the U S has done, um, is going to knock the, what they call knock the curve down or delay the curve. So when we, we think about a curve, like if you count the cases, the line keeps going today, it's 10, tomorrow it's 50, the next day is 100, right? That line keeps going up and up and up. And at some point with every epidemic, it, it starts going down, down, down. And so what they're hoping to do is either delay the, the peak of that curve that curve or make the curve shorter, smaller than it would be if we had absolutely no interventions. Does that make sense? Yes. If your, or your listeners can kind of visualize that. Yeah. If it works, then great. It will be like a great demonstration of early prevention measures um, and some rather severe and unprecedented prevention measures. What's going on around the world, it's a little bit too early to tell. You know, you've probably seen on the news, they're saying, oh, right now, you know, influenza, seasonal influenza, you have about 0.1% of those result in deaths for the new coronavirus, COVID-19, 
um, 19, it's around two and a half, three percent of illnesses result in deaths. For MERS, it went up to like maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 percent. For SARS, it was somewhere around 35 percent. But, you know, we didn't couldn't calculate the percentages for that until it was over, you know, or, or while it was happening. So we can only calculate for coronavirus what the death rate or, you know, the severity of it as it's going along. So is it going to stay around three you know, or two months from now, are we going to see that it's slowly creeping up? It's just too early to know um, how it's going to compare with the other two really big um, worldwide coronaviruses that we have dealt with before, SARS and MERS. But um, but we'll see. And also, I just want to say there's so much confusion about this. Like I've seen on social media, oh, everybody, you're not going to believe this. My two-year-old just tested positive for coronavirus. Or, hey, my Lysol jug says on the back of it that it, it kills coronaviruses. So let me just try to help explain that. So since the 60s, when coronaviruses were first recognized by scientists, there have been four coronaviruses that have been identified that have been circulating in our populations for decades and it causes something called the common cold. So we have coronaviruses, they are out there. They can be killed with Lysol. If you test positive with one, it is not the new coronavirus unless you were tested by CDC. So just wanna sort of set the record straight on that. That's Um, good, yeah. It's important. The other thing, too, is just it's a numbers game. You think about uh, there are a lot of people in China, a lot, a lot, you know, a billion people, and this tiny, tiny percentage, and they're in rural places. It's harder for them to get to medicine and even, you know, understand what's going on necessarily and get to the doctor because, like most of us, what happens when you get sick? You go, ah, I'll be fine. Go to the hospital. No, I'll be fine. It's just a cold. It's just the flu. Well, in some cases, of course, that's the difference between life and death. Dehydration, I imagine, is a big part of it. It is. It is. I mean, if you, I heard this comparison, which really helped me um, sort of get my arms around Hubei province and what it was like for the Chinese government to shut down, you know, Hubei province and say, nobody goes outside, nobody works, no schools. So Hubei is about the size and population of Florida. And so, <laughs> you know, they have a communist government, so they they can do things differently than the U.S. But for the Chinese government to shut down a population and jurisdiction the size of Florida to try to stop, you know, the transmission or movement of this virus around the world. I mean, that is really huge. Um, and and. You know, kudos to them for doing it. Um, Mm. We'll learn, you know, in years of reflection, whether they should have done it sooner or not. You know, there'll be lots of debate about that as the years, lots of scientific papers about all of that. But (laughs) I think that, you know, just for the U.S. to sort of realize the magnitude of what they are dealing with over there, it's just ginormous. Um, And we may see additional hospitalizations, you know, because they... You know, as we have more hospitalizations and, you know, resources and staff become, um, you know, slim and overworked and supplies are low, I mean, that might contribute to a rise in the number of severe cases and deaths. So we'll just have to sort of keep a close eye on it and see how how things work out. Let's talk about anti-vax for a minute. 
Oh, good Lord. Yeah, I know that's a huge subject and probably extraordinarily frustrating to somebody like you. Uh, (laughs) Firstly, when we were kids, we got, what, seven, eight shots over a course of, and now there's a lot more. So I think for a lot of people, they think, oh my God, why so many shots? This isn't necessary, this, that, and the other thing. The bottom line is, you're not just protecting, this is my opinion, I could be wrong, but in my opinion, you're not just protecting your family by getting your shots, but you're also protecting the the surrounding families, all the people in your school and all the people at your work. And it's not just about you, you know? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you think that way. I think that, um, you know, there are a small population of people who don't agree with that, um, don't agree that they have a responsibility to help protect the herd. That's what we call it, herd immunity, right? And so they don't think that they um, should vaccinate their kids if it's against their religious philosophical personal yeah it gets complicated when it's that stuff yeah for sure yeah and so you know are there rare side effects of vaccination of course you know some people faint um some people have you know sore and redness i mean you know soreness redness Mm -hmm. um some people you know get a vaccine and may run a fever two days later um that might be you know associated with that that shot but this idea that vaccines cause um you know autism scientifically there's no basis for that that um that it's not an important part of of um improving public health those sorts of things um i i have a difficult time sort of um even chatting with them because once they made up their mind it's like science doesn't matter and so I'm a person that believes science and data, and I also believe that I, um, you know, have a responsibility um, to help protect my community. And my community might be my church or my school or my workplace. And so I buy into that mentality. The folks that don't believe in that maybe should, and that's their right. It's their personal conviction. They, if they don't want to vaccinate their kids, um, they don't have to, but they should also think about maybe homeschooling. Yeah, so that the, that's, their children yeah. are not out in schools and that sort of thing. Susan, I think that if we, I think we, our generation, um, I'm um, in my early 50s, I think we take for granted good health. I mean, we have not lived in the days of polio and widespread measles and rubella. And we just, you know, we've not had cousins and family members, you know, get sick and die from things that are perfectly preventable these days. And I think we, as a generation, maybe sometimes become a little bit um, arrogant, um, maybe not respectful of, you know, what our grandparents went through. And that really makes me sad. Um, because I, I hope that it doesn't take another, you know, polio or, you know, measles out, continued measles outbreaks and those kinds of things to help people realize how important vaccinations are. Yeah, and we have had measles outbreaks. Oh, my gosh. I worked a measles outbreak in Tennessee when I was there. 
and we had only I think five or six cases and something like 1100 contacts like so many people had to keep their kids home for 21 days and because they had not been vaccinated and they didn't have or they didn't have proof of vaccination and so we had to say sorry you can't take your kids to school you can't take them to daycare so then you've got parents that are trying to, you know that they maybe have two working parents so now they've got loss of income because they can't take their kids to daycare are they they're scrambling to get family members to come and help and it's just a really really bad situation i mean economically it makes no sense not to vaccinate your kids because if something happens they're going to be told to stay home yeah i had the flu on uh, new year's day and yeah. i went to bed new year's eve before midnight because you know boring and whatever uh woke up in the morning and just vomited all day long it was sick as a dog for four days it just came out of no nowhere yeah that's but that is the way you can tell flu from cold from colds because you have that very rapid onset and it's not sniffling sneezing right that is not that is not the flu it's this rapid onset of fever malay you know feeling very tired um a cough or shortness of breath it's just like feeling hit by a truck kind of kind of thing. So, um, yeah, a virologist or an immunologist would be great at that question. Yeah. it's a, the, Do you think that we have the potential? Now, again, you're not a virologist, but uh, this is a, a question that you may uh, be able to answer. Uh, the flu of 1918 that wiped out a third of the population on the planet, do you, if not a little more, is that something from my I did it I did a deep dive on that flu I was very curious about it and learned that it really struck quote-unquote healthy people that normally a flu wouldn't because when you hear flu, flu you think old people babies they're scared yeah. but in this case it took down people in the prime of their life and their health and their vigor because it scrambled the body's understanding of it attacked itself basically it went into hyper mode of trying to you know protect itself and people ended up drowning you know and that kind of thing do you think something like that is potentially out there or do you think we are now at a place where we can monitor and and do what you were talking about swoop in and contain yeah i would would like to think that um we could avoid a repeat of something like 1918. Now, having said that, there are some caveats. Um, I think the United States and some other, you know, developed countries um, would have a better chance of, you know, trying to avoid a repeat of something like 1918. But it's quite possible that if something like that came back, we might not be able to protect um, underdeveloped or developing countries um, in the same way because what happens with a pandemic is then the entire world is battling it and so you know if it's just a localized epidemic then the U.S. or Europe can go in and help and support responses in other countries that don't have as much 
uh, you know, like we did for Ebola, right? So if, if the countries don't have the infrastructure to care for people, if it's a focal outbreak, then we can, you know, bring in resources to help. In a pandemic situation, the, the, the big countries might not have the capacity to help um, underdeveloped or developing countries um, in the same way. And so I worry that they could potentially suffer casualties if we had a big new superbug influenza kind of thing. Um, you know, the last few times that it's that it's happened, um, it's not been fun, but um, we've sort of, you know, ridden it through and gotten past it. So like, for example, H1N1, when that um, virus jumped up, first noticed in Mexico and then um, in Southern California, that, that flu started totally off season. Like it started, it was recognized, I think in April and it was just totally out of season, which is probably one of the reasons it was recognized so quickly. Um, but that's, that flu H1N1, the pandemic version of, in, of 2009, that strain still circulates today. Like that is the majority of our influenza A infections that happen during seasonal flu now. So while when we first saw it, it was a big deal and we had, you know, a year's worth of plus work, work, worth of response. Now we're sort of past it and we're able to, you know, now it's just sort of part of our, unfortunately, part of our flu mix <laughs> most years. So I, I don't expect that we would have a repeat of something like 1918 with a natural um, bug, but um, I, I do worry about some parts of the world that aren't as equipped as we are to help ourselves. Yeah, and of course, we, we won't even get into biological warfare and all that kind of fun stuff, because that's a whole other ball of wax, and probably not your forte either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think, you know, thank God for places like the CDC, who I imagine have deep, deep wells of every kind of contagion they're probably that they know of and its antidote. I would imagine that that's kind of how it works. Yeah, it's funny because somebody asked me when I was talking about coronavirus recently, they were like, really? CDC is the only one that has a test? Why? I said, novel coronavirus. No one in the world has seen it before, including CDC. So it's brand new. You know, we can't, we can't prepare for everything. So, um, so yeah, that's why they're the only ones right now that have a test, but this too shall pass. Um, but yeah, occasionally things do come up that we, we've never seen before. What we try to do now with, with advanced biologics is try to build, um, I saw this really cool graphic recently where they were saying, well, you know, we can build on vaccine work, particularly now with sort of, um, you know, man-made vaccines, you can take components and move them around a lot easier with man-made vaccines than with biologics. And so if we have, you know, something that's similar, then we can get to a vaccine sooner because we're not having to start from scratch, right? We can take components of this, this man-made vaccine and that man-made, mad, ugh, that man-made vaccine, and then tack on the, the new part of the new virus. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So they're, they are really getting better at doing those kinds of things to help us get to um, vaccines, to antivirals, to treatments. And vaccine. HIV is a perfect example of that because, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
yeah, it took some time. And then there was the, the few asymptomatic HIV patients, and I'm sure they descended on those folks and said, can we have some of your blood, please? <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. It's, fa- it's a fascinating subject. And then you yeah. talk about, you know, um, a new virus, but is it is it new? Is it already out there and it just so happens that maybe some animal passed it to some human or vice versa or, or well, what? it had to be out there somewhere yeah it, it doesn't just hybrid out and but it wasn't causing illness in animals or humans so you know i mean you can't imagine the infinitely number infinite number of viruses there are probably out so many there. I'm so yeah. sorry to anyone listening who is a hypochondriac because yeah. <laughs> it's the worst thing to hear. <laughs> hypochondriacs should wash their hands. Everyone should wash their hands and sing happy birthday in your head while you lather twice, right? Happy okay. birthday twice. That's what I read online. <laughs> I've seen that too. I've seen that too. I've actually started washing my hands more lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would imagine. And the, the people that think that just Purell alone is the thing, it's not. They say that it's not as good as the washing of the hands. Exactly. It's it's warm water, it's soap, and it's friction mm. that gets you to the cleanliness. <laughs> Sorry, that got me a little turned on. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I did that, said that just for you. Oh, Susan. thank you. Um what are some uh, maybe websites people can go and look at things that uh, I put this again in quotes the everyman the the, the the regular person that's just trying to live their lives that doesn't have a science background where can they go to do a little reading a little research things that I can put on hey human podcast on the links page just to ease people's fears perhaps ooh well. I mean, we are using, you're talking about for coronavirus? Or? For anything. Sure, coronavirus. I mean, the cdc.org, of course, is a is a great. There's a, um, this is not going to alleviate their fears necessarily. There, I have seen this um, coronavirus dashboard that Johns Hopkins has published, and it is amazing. Um, I've even seen some TV broadcasts use it as like their backdrop their blue screen kind of thing that is really really cool um just make sure when you go on the cdc website that you like look at the sort of information for the public because you could get lost for days looking at the information for healthcare providers the information for public health the information for the maritime industry i mean it's just not so well i'll get the john hopkins link and stick it on hey human and yeah so that is a really really cool thing that i saw which is kind of neat um and if people want to find you how might they do that is there or are you unfindable for what you do no 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 i mean they can email me at my gmail account if they want or they can email you and you can send it to me whatever with questions or concerns or yeah Yeah. all right so anybody listening if you have a question for rendy send it to me at susan at heyhumanpodcast.com and i will send it (laughs) So what's what's the favorite joke you've heard about coronavirus? The the one I've heard the most, of course, is the, with the beers. You know, it's just coronas. You know, yeah. So right, yeah. Well, have you heard that that coronavirus comes with a Lyme disease? Oh man, <laughs> we didn't talk about Lyme disease, and you know, I've had some friends in Nashville that have had that, and talk about a tough thing to get rid of. Yeah, it 
true Lyme disease infections are difficult. I, I try not to talk about Lyme disease because it's highly controversial. And yeah. I was a Lyme disease expert for eight years and felt very attacked on many occasions, <laughs> again, for trying to... Um, to believe data and science and it's it's difficult because there are a lot of really sick people that are struggling and you want to help them get better um so what's yeah, wild it, about lyme disease too is that it presents differently depending on the person it's not like you have the flu you're probably either going to barf or poop your brains out you're gonna have a high fever you're gonna feel like crap your skin's gonna hurt and then five days later, you're going to feel better and drink a bunch of Gatorade and do your best, you know, or whatever, maybe get some Tamiflu. Yeah. But the people I know with Lyme disease, it's some have really achy joints, some have migraines all the time, some have blurry vision, some, you know, there's just all these different presentations from what I can gather because I play a doctor on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. And is that incorrect or would you say that's a, a fair assessment or... I think, so yes, there are several different manifestations of Lyme disease. So, you know, the easy one is just the rash that you can take some antibiotics and it resolves. And then there are, like you said, some later state or kind of later stage manifestations, the, you know, neurologic Bell's palsy, neurologic conditions, um, headaches, that's that sort of thing. Um, I think where it gets a little fuzzy is that there are a lot of folks who then have, you know, aches and pains and other associated symptoms long after they were diagnosed with Lyme disease that they try to associate back to that original infection. And I think the reality is that um, it's unlikely that they have had infection that long, um, but perhaps what there's their experiencing are some potential you know um, lingering effects of a cleared infection does that make sense yeah because it leaves behind um as you were talking about with the elephants it's a, a shedding not so much not so much i think that this idea that you have a lyme disease infection like the live spirochete in your body for you know, multiple years, five, seven, 10, 20 years. I think that is my, this is my, per, this is Randy Murphy's personal opinion is that that is highly unlikely. Um, so anyway, so. Well, can, well, can diseases, it's an interesting question because uh, Lyme disease or not, can't diseases sort of hide out in a person's body waiting for the opportune moment to strike? Some of, some of them can. Yes, there are some that can, tan, can, like tuberculosis. It's very well known that if you get a tuberculosis infection, that it can just stay dormant in your body for a really long time. And then should you experience some, you know, attack on your immune system or your immune system get weak for, gets weak for some reason or maybe no good reason, it activates in your body and then causes disease. Yes, yeah. that is not the model for Lyme disease. Interesting. Interesting. I find it all very fascinating, and I have I find you very fascinating, and have adored you from the moment we met because you and I have the coolest conversations. Yeah, I feel like I have that Rocket Man, you know, job. It's it's all the science I don't understand. It's just my job five days a week. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel very very lucky to have my rocket man job well i think they're lucky to have you you're very bright i'm curious when you go into uh i should have asked this earlier 
But uh, when you go into other countries where, let's just say, women aren't regarded as highly as men, how do, how do you work around that little situation? Yeah, it's tricky, Susan. Like, it's, um, it's all about trying to build trust. And usually, I, my approach to doing that is really using a servant leadership model where I just try to have some small wins early on with providing assistance or advice and that sort of thing and sort of slowly building that trust. But you're right. There are there have been many instances where, especially initially, I've had to go into meetings with, you know, male counterparts um, before, you know, I sort of was able to start you know kind of speaking out on my own so it's it's tricky but that's you know we all we get some culture briefings on that generally before we're shipped out but it also just takes you know a kind heart and a patient heart to for you know for someone like me when you're going into that situation just to know that you know it's sort of like you know when in rome Mm. it just you know live, live as the romans but you know try to to be as effective as you can in creating you know, building trust and creating change while you're there. Yeah, and for all the girls and women listening to know that you really, I mean, said, I want to do this thing, and you, you you, got this thing. You are who you set out to be, regardless of the fact that you said that you came from a socioeconomic background that maybe wouldn't have supported normally a female pursuing what you have pursued. And I think that's a huge thing to, to, to just shine a light on. Yeah, I appreciate that. I really am as surprised as everyone else (laughs) that I have had such a phenomenal career and was able to attain, you know, a PhD and and doing this work, this this great work. I just am so lucky and um, proud to have gotten here. And I try to give back. I, I, I mentor or talk with a lot of you know, junior scientists or folks who want to work in the field of epidemiology. And I always, always take the time to chat with them or, you know, talk about my career path. And because and, it was circuitous. I mean, I didn't have a, a straight path from high school, you know, to PhD. It was a, a winding one. So um, thank you for that acknowledgement. And yeah, um, you know, try to live your dreams. You are thank the you, best. Susan. All right. Thanks, everyone. You have got to be so busy right now, so I really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. I'm glad that we were able to do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.